Everybody, we're glad to have you here this evening. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Feeney. And I'm back. It's your co-host, we, Aaron. I'm here. We got Aaron back. We we, we heard your complaints uh, loud and clear, <laughs> and I flew to California myself and pulled him back from uh, RailsConf. And... <gasps> oh, I wish. It, sadly, it wasn't RailsConf. It was Ruby by the Bay. Oh, Ruby by the Bay. Yeah. I, they're, it's all the same thing, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Isn't it, Ruby and Rails? It's there. It's literally in the name, Ruby on Rails. Oh yeah, it's all the same. Yeah, it's all the same thing. Uh, <laughs> folks, if you are enjoying checking out uh, the Drunken UX podcast, please run by our sponsors over at New Cloud. You can check them out at newcloud.com/slash Drunken UX. They do interactive maps and other fun things like that. Um, so give them a shout if that's something that you're looking for. Uh, Let's see, this week we are going to be looking at a couple different topics. Uh, we've got a couple articles that uh, tickled our fancy and we wanted to share them with you and the stuff behind them. So we're going to be talking about accessibility again, mm -hmm. uh, because that is a topic worth reviewing many times. I agree. Uh, and then, uh, since we are coming out of uh, our last episode where I talked with uh, Brian Olendike about the Hacks Editor... Uh, and the work they're doing in terms of utilizing web component com components, <laughs> web it it wouldn't be a drunken UX episode <laughs> if I didn't mispronounce something in the first five minutes. Web explosions. Uh, it, they're using web components to build up their block editor, and so we've got a piece to share with you about uh, design systems and the way they can leverage web components to make your design work easier. I want to learn more about this. It sounds like a, a fun time, right? <laughs> it's it's funny because I, I have to tell my uh, coworkers at, at work as opposed to my coworkers at somewhere home? else. Uh, Your coworkers at home. You can always tell when I've learned about something new in preparing for an episode of this <laughs> or I've talked to somebody who got me excited about something because I inevitably start bringing it up at work. And Web Components is one of those things where it was like I have this whole talk with, with – uh, <laughs> Uh, Brian and we we learn about it and we think about you know ways we can use it and I'm already trying to think like you know there's some ways we could make use of that so we're going to talk about some of that uh, I, tonight I find that the preparation for our show is that it helps like it gives me ideas at my job too it's kind of neat yeah see really we're just doing this for us uh, it has nothing to do with you guys yeah Sorry. totally you're just along for the ride uh, no it it's important and we've talked many times I think about you know this idea of how you keep up how you train yourself to learn new things, and uh, I would be lying to disagree with that. Like, mm -hmm. this is part of my process, I think. Yeah. Talking to other developers, figuring out what they're passionate about and what they're doing and how they're utilizing new technology is my little bit of insight into those things that I'm not doing. And so there is absolutely a, a self-help you know, component to this yeah. kind of approach. And you don't have to run a podcast to do that. You <laughs> could just... Do it. Honestly, the amount of effort it takes to run a podcast, I'm sure there's a way that's more efficient. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, highly, highly true. Let's see. This evening, I am drinking a gingerbread. I was Ooh. trying to use up some stuff out of my bar. That's the one that you gave me the recipe for, right? With the yeah, yeah, the hot or the cinnamon schnapps and the yep, 
Uh, it's uh, equal parts Bailey's or any Irish cream, um, Fireball, Fireball, and peach schnapps. Oh, peach schnapps? Not. I'm sorry, butterscotch. I don't know why I said peach. <laughs> I have no idea right. why I said peach okay. schnapps, but I, I still have a bottle of butterscotch schnapps from the last time I made them. I I made myself a like a whole shaker so I can just sit here and pour. <laughs> nice. Um, but the the actual thing that I, I'm having fun with though is this last weekend, and uh, there's a photo of it on our Instagram, um, which you can go check out. I've got these glasses. Oh, I saw glass. that. Yeah, so it's this sort of square shaped. Um, low ball yeah uh, it's by a company called corksicle uh-huh. and they have not paid for anything i just happened to get it and they are the ones who made it um uh, and it's got this giant silicone wedge you shove into it and then you fill the glass up with water and you stick it all in your freezer then you take it out you pull the silicone mold out and you're left with this 45 degree angled piece of ice inside the glass that you pour your huh. drink onto now mine uh and Aaron can see you yeah. cannot obviously, but my wedge is now gone. It has yes. uh, it has melted enough that it is no longer a wedge. But um, I don't hate how gimmicky it is, actually. <laughs> um, and if you want to see it, I'm gonna just for the fun of it, I'm gonna throw a link to it in our show notes. So yeah, go it, go take a look at it. Pretty it's, cool. <laughs> it's like a it's like a seventeen dollar glass. It's got like four and a half stars or something on Amazon. It's hmm. well reviewed well-liked glass as it turns out so um yeah i'm just kind of i'm I'm playing this evening <laughs> i just have I, i'm actually getting over a cold so i have just got orange juice <laughs> no no vodka or anything uh, uh no fun for aaron sadly no i i promise i'll still say dumb things though you, i won't you disappoint <laughs> well d- go can you do me a favor go uh, grab the nyquil out of the cupboard <laughs> And oh just God. can you can you pound that for me just real fast? <laughs> you know that would actually be interesting, but I I don't know. I can't make any promises on quality. <laughs> you have any Sudafed in the cupboard? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, speaking of Instagram, if you want to check that out, uh, we are at drunken not drunkenux dot com Instagram dot com slash drunkenux podcast. Uh, Twitter and Facebook are just slash drunkenux. You can connect with us there and and chat with us. Give us a a, a holler, uh, and don't forget drunkenux dot com slash slack for the link oh, yeah. to come join and chat with us. We see new people pop in once in a while. Yeah, yeah. If folks drop in, ask us a question, whatever. Um, my big thing is if you have an idea for a show, that's a great way to just hop on, chat with us about it, let us know what you'd like to hear. Yeah, and we'll see if we can slot it into a future episode. Um, and so we'd be happy. And if it's something we don't know anything about, we would love to go find somebody who does and bring them in. So, and if you're um, someone who knows a lot about it, it could be you. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you want to be on the show, you can also try to you know suggest that. And yeah, we'd be happy for it. <laughs> um. Okay. So we've got uh, the future of ex- I, I labeled it the future of accessibility. Yeah. That may not be a great headline, but it's the way I titled it in the show notes. It's very um, ominous. Well, I read the article that you sent me. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) Well, it's called uh, The Web We Broke, right? Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, it's definitely kind of a not rosy, (laughs) starry-eyed view of things. There will be a link in the show notes. um, 
when you're able, I highly recommend checking this out because I think it's a good, um, it's not a postmortem because we're still in the middle of it, but it's, it's kind of a good dive into, uh, some of the things we're going to be talking about this evening and how they do or do not play nice with accessibility. Well, it's a short article, mm-hmm. but it is loaded with yeah. outside resources. Like, every other word is a link to something, practically. <laughs> uh, and it, it's Ethan Marcotte, right? Yeah. I mean, how do you possibly go wrong <laughs> uh, in, in that situation? So what he's what he's talking about in this article is this idea that it is 2019. We've been building websites for the better part of... I was going to say, you know, you know, 25 years. Really, it's almost 30 at this mm-hmm. point. Um, Jeez. But but really, you know, the the golden age, so to speak, started mm-hmm. right around 1995. So, yeah. you know, it's it About, that'd be what 24 years. So I I was 25 is 25 almost there. 25 seems fine. Yeah. That was sort of, you know, the ushering in of this modern era that reflects kind of what we have now. And in all of that time, his argument is we are still awful at mm-hmm. producing accessible websites. And and so uh I guess as kind of a breaking the fourth wall here, like we saw this article and thought like we should do a thing about this later. And then there's another article or actually another two articles that came up later, which we'll discuss later in the show, which are about some of those the new cool hotness things um like with uh web components, right? Yeah. And so like so we have all of this really awesome like stuff pushing technology forward in really awesome and new fun ways. But then we also have this other aspect of kind of the old, not old, but um, web classic, maybe <laughs> like the accessibility things are, are just sort of baseline stuff that, I mean, I guess it's sort of um, acting as a dragging force on the forward motion one. But at the same time, I think it's also really important. And how do we find, how do we like toe that line in a way that we're still incorporating accessible things, but also pushing things forward in a positive way? And so it seemed like two good topics to juxtapose. Yeah, yeah. Um, And in part, uh, you know, in in lieu of that, so to speak, one of the things that uh, Ethan is making a call to is a a research project that WebAIM published. and. They they went through and they uh, analyzed a million pages, and I'll we'll link specifically to directly to the report. But the report is also linked in in his article. Um, they analyzed a million pages and tried to find what kind of problems there were. Mm, okay, I remember that now. And, and so there's this section in the article that starts it just and it hits very high level stuff <laughs> just to kind of showcase some of the problems. Wait, but, a, a direct quote from the article. The results are, in a word, abysmal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they are. Um, one out of every ten homepages has a skip link to help users jump directly to a page's content, but one out of every ten of those links were broken. <laughs> there were roughly 2.1 million layout tables detected and only 114,000 data tables. Wow. Oh, uh... An overwhelming majority of home pages had images without alt text. Oh, pop pages containing popular JavaScript frameworks were more likely to have accessibility errors than those that didn't use those frameworks, which is 
I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I know I've brought this up before. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, that's a, a jumping off point because the thing is, it is 2019. We have been doing this forever. We, we've talked about it on this show in the past and every conference you go to, somebody is talking about accessibility and we have been forever. So why is it still so hard? And like thinking about things like, you know, JavaScript frameworks and the like, a lot of these frameworks now come with accessibility functionality baked into them. Mm -hmm. And yet we still, I, I, my worry there is that it's sort of symptomatic of us thinking we can just offload all of our accessibility concerns to the software and the software will just do it for us. Well, here's a great example. Like a lot of, you know, we, we talk about WordPress a lot on this show and WordPress forever has had the ability to put alt tag on images. And you can even, I think you might even be able to configure it to where it like demands that you include it. But I, I guarantee there's WordPress sites out there that have images without alt tags. And I guarantee you almost all of them. Have images <laughs> but, it. but like WordPress even makes it easy because when you put an image into your gallery, at least the last time I used it much, it was this case, you could name the image and then the name both makes it easier to retrieve the image later. But also I think the name falls through on the alt text, right? Maybe. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's not necessarily up to WordPress. It's up to the theme developer. In oh, cases. yeah. Good point. You know, and making sure that they implement on a given image, depending on, and this does depend on how the images are being called and, you know, uh, how they're presented in the layout. But mm. yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible to, you know, have images presented on in the theme without anything. If mm -hmm. that's, you know, if that's what you're after. So, like, in that kind of case, let, you know, when you think about a WordPress theme, for instance, and people who develop WordPress themes, uh, you know, if you go get your theme from a, you know, from Theme Forest or something like that, or, yeah. you know, a company like Theme Station or one of these that is known for building themes, that's their bread and butter, they're doing it for, you know, thousands of websites, you can trust what they're making. It's the, literally but, their one job. Yeah. <laughs> But for a lot of folks, they are getting by implementing stuff that they don't necessarily understand completely. I would challenge anybody, uh, for the most part, to tell me that they have read every inch of the documentation for WordPress, and they mm -hmm. know every hook and all the arguments they take and all of this. And right. the problem becomes it's easy to implement something incompletely. Yeah. That feels complete. And I I think I would like to say that I don't think that we're saying there should be this shouldn't be a gatekeeping issue. This shouldn't be where you're required to know everything about WordPress, for example, before you use it. Right? Well, no, but it's yeah. I mean, yes, I agree. Yeah. Not, no, I don't agree. <laughs> it's it's this idea that uh no matter what we do, you're talking about an unknown unknown. Yeah. Yeah. If you are building your first WordPress theme as a developer and you're relying on the documentation and you're getting by, you're you find your function like that's the function I need. Mm -hmm. And in most cases it's very easy to use those functions. But if you are somebody who is still learning this stuff and nobody has ever told you, "Hey, make sure you're including alt text in that image tag that you're writing." Right. 
then you know you you don't know what you don't know in that situation so you right. can't possibly put it in there gotcha um and that's true of you know any kind of technology that if you don't fully understand it which i mean let's face it most web developers do not understand the technology they are using through and through whether that's mm-hmm. react angular you know php uh are you you know java take your pick mm-hmm. um we know we may know a lot but we don't know it absolutely through and through and it always leaves that opportunity for doing something not like game breaking wrong but just not in the most optimal way all the time i, I think part of this is that accessibility is kind of it's not tacked on but it's it's a layer above like the the functional and practical aspects of creating content or creating anything on the web and so you can create something on the web and be blissfully unaware of the world of accessibility which i think is kind of what you were just saying like yeah, the, the yeah. unknown unknown so you know you may have an awesome theme if you're unaware of accessibility concerns you're not going to know to look for, oh, does this theme automatically do alt text on the on the theme images that I don't I can't control unless making a child theme or whatever. Yeah. Or picking colors. If you've yeah. never known somebody or talked to somebody who is colorblind. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You are completely and blissfully unaware of the challenges that can come by combining certain colors together. <laughs> the red text on the green background. And I mean, <laughs> You know for a fact that you have seen a website that has done that at some point in your life. Probably. (laughs) But we do, because as an industry, right, we are an open industry. We are an industry that fosters, uh, you know, challenging things and learning Mm. things and experimenting. And this idea of just getting, you know, diving right into the material. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's not necessarily a lot of hand-holding that happens in that process, especially when you, know, you think about some of the folks who are really getting into web development. They're getting into it very young. Yeah, you know, or through boot, boot camps. That's the hot thing right now. Yeah, and if you're a middle school or high school or if you're in one of those Code Academy type things mm-hmm. or anything like that, the boot camps, you, know, you're, you may be getting into that super young, well before you know, any kind of formal training would ever even dictate something like, oh, and by the way, Here's accessibility, you know, <laughs> and a lot of those specs also, because we we preach a lot, right? This idea of accessibility should be the you know the first thing in the door, basically, like it mm-hmm. should be part of the conversation from the start. But from a learning aspect, that intrinsically cannot be true. Yeah, because you can't. While you could certainly learn some principles, there is also the technical implementation side to it that you can't use until you understand how the rest of the code works you know what though we have have we mentioned cargo culting on this show before you yeah you i remember that phrase because i remember saying that's a cool phrase (laughs) oh so you know new developers cargo cult things all the time I, i mean i'm guilty of it like i did it and still do it sometimes um, it just, you, you, if something works, you just replicate because it works. And then if the replicant works, you're good. Um, why can't we do cargo culting with accessibility stuff? Why, why can't it be, um, something where like, well, of course the font contrast ratio looks like this. Why wouldn't it be? Cause it works like that. 
or of course the image has alt text. Why wouldn't it have alt text? Where we just sort of like, you know, it's just, it's when you're doing a boot camp or if you're training someone new or if you're learning, there's a book, whatever, instead of saying like, oh, here, so you have the image tag and the source tag, also saying like, here's the alt tag and you write the description of it here. You just do. Don't ask why. You just do it. I think the reason that's hard and the reason that doesn't work as well mm-hmm. is because let's take, you know, the font contrast issue. It's easy to put the colors in the page, but there is no feedback. Yeah. There is there is no mechanism by which anything other than if you know I want, you know, yellow text on a white background because that's <laughs> what my I thought that looked cool. Oh. And you know, it's a dark yellow. Give me a break. Um, But if that's what I want, and I write that code to do that, Mm -hmm. and it works, then, I mean, that's the the exact danger of the cargo cult, right? Sure. Is that you you are repeating something that isn't good for you. Right. uh, Because you get the outcome you expect, but you don't necessarily understand the consequences to that or or long-term implications. And with a contrast ratio, it instinctively requires you to use another tool to then figure it out. When I was at USCIS, we we used this tool called Andy, A-N-D-I, uh, which was made I by the Andy. made by the SSA, the Social Security. Um, but it's really cool. I, I put the link in the show notes, and I I think that everyone everyone should have this on their bookmarks bar. You, it's basically what it is. It's a bookmarklet meaning that it's like a uh, long string of JavaScript in a URL and you just drag it onto your bookmarks bar and then on any page at all, you click the button and then it will evaluate the page and identify any, um, I I think it targets the low-hanging fruit, but uh, based on that Ethan Marcotte article, it sounds like that will still generate a lot of hits. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So it'll, it'll see your images with the alt text. It'll see if you have a table that doesn't have the scoping set correctly. They're also browser side improve and mm-hmm. uh, is it uh, Axe have both got Axe, uh, Chrome yeah. plugins. Um, yeah. We'll link those too just for the sake of argument, but they give you like they'll scan a page that you've got open in your browser. Uh, AXE is also, uh, the Axe is also used by um, DQ Labs. That's D E Q U E U E, right? Or is it too many UEs? D-E-Q-U-E-U-E, like that. Um, they have a product called Attest, and we use that at USCIS also. They have um, some RSpec things you can use if you do Rails, where it'll automatically evaluate your page for whatever accessibility concerns that you've identified. So um, you can build that into your automated testing suite as well. And I, I think you're right. Like, when we teach people... I think we certainly can say, by the way, as soon as you're done, the mm-hmm. very next thing you do is run this tool. Yeah. I, I think that is so- certainly something you can teach, but only if you're in <laughs> a teachable setting. If I am sitting up on my computer at 10 o'clock at night before I go to bed and I'm 16 years old and I'm just looking for how do I make font <laughs> yellow, right? <laughs> I'm going to get a line of CSS and keep going. And that's, yeah. that's that challenge. That's that. Just dive in and learn by doing. And that the learn by doing process is fantastic. And it's something I advocate for and I encourage people in. But we can't pretend like that doesn't also sure. have drawbacks. I, I had a boss who used to say that was um, knowing enough to be dangerous. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and the the other reason this becomes hard is, and we've said this before, it's nothing new that the ideas of like design and development and content mm-hmm. authoring are distinctly different yeah. and incongruent skill sets that you're asking all of those things to align into accessibility. You know, mm-hmm. the developers have to build the things accessible. The designers have to know how to design the thing accessible. Yeah. And then the content authors need to know how to use the tools to put in the information to make it accessible. Right. And those those things are hard to get into alignment. It's a lot of overlap. Yeah. It's There's a lot of overlap, but not it's just not in the right places, <laughs> I think, yeah. to... To get the right outcome for most places, and I'm I'm saying this very generically because there are certainly places that have solved this, but the solutions are generally unique to each environment because your workflow doesn't look like my workflow. Right. The way the way you know you've developed a tool isn't the way I've developed the tool. Um. The the nexus for this really is user experience. Right. Um. And to a lesser extent, QA. You don't need to be drunk though. That's optional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, preferably, <laughs> if you're on the job, don't be. Uh, I, I think. Well, I think also, um, and I, I think we'll get to more of this later. But I think also building team awareness. You know, like it does have a lot of overlap. There is a lot of areas, but if everyone is educated and trained to be aware of accessibility things like contrast ratio or heading hierarchy or um, table scoping, if you're aware of these things, then it becomes easier for you to kind of like work together and collaborate and hold each other accountable. Yeah. And I, I will admit our team has had a lot of success in that area. Actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a project in the works right now that I've been thrilled that all of our early discussions that we have had with the first round of like design comps and everything have all included multiple questions about, can you change this color because we can't build it without violating contrast <laughs> <standards>? Excellent. <laughs> because, the, again, the person designing it didn't know. In fact, the person designing it was following a pattern that we do use on our website now. Uh, <laughs> we just have not gotten to a point where we could change it yet. Uh, but with new stuff, we can, you know, with the new development, we can say, mm-hmm. you know what? New development, we're not going to make that way. Um and their brand colors. Oh. You know, it's one of those yeah. things that, you know, the, the brand colors are the brand colors. And you have to find, you know, in those situations, the trick is to find different ways to implement those colors. Uh, you know, you can't just use them any way you want to as a consequence of that. Yeah. And that can be a incredibly difficult thing to make people who get paid a lot more than you understand. Yeah. I don't care if it doesn't look right. Yeah, it's the, (laughs) can you change the color? No, you can't change the color. That's our brand color. That is literally the brand standard. And they're right. It is the brand standard. But (laughs) that doesn't mean we have to use it here. Um, And so, to to your point, though, I've been thrilled that we've got all of our team members thinking about that constantly. Mm -hmm. And we've got QA that goes in and checks that. But I'm also not going to pretend like, that's not a fairly unique thing, I think. I uh, think that it's important for people, for like, uh, you know, senior people, the the OG internet people like you and I, to, as when we mentor newer developers, to, you know, 
affirmatively bring up the issue of accessibility. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Any any chance we get, and that's true too, like going back to little Jimmy looking up how to make a yellow text at 1030 at night, the thing that he finds should mm. have a note there <laughs> like, that says, <laughs> well, no, I mean, do it. You can use yellow text. You just have to use it in the right context. Right. And in most cases, it's not the right context, <laughs> but you can do it and have it be accessible. Sure. But it, that information should inherently come with a caveat that says, use this, but mm-hmm. if you're going to use it as a font color, make sure you have checked X, Y, and Z. And in most cases, it doesn't. And even if it does, most people don't read all that. Or or even even easier, just say, like, if you're going to have, if you're, hey, if you're going to use this color, here's a good background that would complement it. And it has the right font contrast ratio. Or just say, like, if you have this color... This is the font contrast ratio against these different backgrounds. Yeah. I don't know. This is an imaginary tool that we're not actually looking at. So Sure, sure. No. <laughs> I, I have an analogy that yes. I really like, and I've been thinking about it a lot more lately, and it's one that irritates people <laughs> uh, because of what the end of it is. So I compare this to construction. I've always thought about web development from a construction standpoint. My dad was a carpenter, and so I think I just, I just kind of rooted the, rooted it there. But there are a lot of parallels, I think, from a process standpoint, from a specialty standpoint. Um, and I think that bakes into why we have so many problems with this, though, because there's one area where we don't at all align, mm-hmm. and it's the thing that makes the difference. So... When you're building a building, you're gonna you've got a new business downtown that you're gonna go make, and they need they want this building made, and they've okay. gone and they've hired their architect, and they've got the contractors lined up who are gonna get all the teams together to build all this, and then you've got they're gonna line up connecting with the inspectors at the city to make sure all your code enforcement is right, and that's the thing, because code enforcement isn't so much about literal code um, mm-hmm. in our industry. It's about the standards enforcement. Right. (laughs) When you're in construction, when you're building buildings, every city has its own codes. Most of them use the the International Building Code as their, like, baseline. This is the way things need to be built. And you have to have a city inspector sign off on those things. And if a city inspector walks into your four-story building and sees that you don't have an elevator... Yeah. He is going to shut your project down and you're going to have to fix it even if the architect was too dumb to know that he needed to uh put in an elevator shaft in the design. Or it it's also things like uh how big load-bearing joists have to be, right? Or, right. Or how lar- how wide walkways have to be or hallways. Yeah, very like invisible kind of ideas, right? Things we just take for granted. <laughs> <laughs> things we take for granted, but things that also don't make themselves apparent if you don't need them, certainly. Right. You know, a lot of people never see alt text on an image, mm-hmm. so it just doesn't occur to them that that's even a thing. Um, but that, and I'm going to use this word again, that nexus of those skill sets is made possible. And, and as a result, we build accessible buildings now. The bottom line of this is the reason it works the reason we build accessible buildings mm-hmm. is because it's regulated. Yeah. And it's heavily regulated. For good reason, though. For Well, yeah, for good yeah. reason. 
but try to convince a world of web developers that we need regulation and enforcement <laughs> of these standards and you would have a revolution on your hands not a revolution of war i i think i think this is a good analogy because the reason we have regulation is because if you didn't or like building with building code at least if we didn't have building code regulation then there would be an incentive a cost incentive to not make hallways wide enough for wheelchairs or to not make tall buildings have elevators yeah 100 uh, percent. yeah and so because we don't have that with web where there's no regulation requiring that because it would be an extra cost and so most i, I, I don't want to say most well actually it is most according to the ethan marcott article um most websites don't want to spend that cost they're taking that cost incentive yeah yeah because because it is it if you went to somebody and said, yeah, I need this website built, but I also want to make sure we pass WKAA on everything, mm -hmm. you've probably, possibly doubled the price. But here's the thing. Most folks don't even know to ask that question. As a business right. owner, they don't even know to say those words. Uh, we'll have an example later, but um, right now, if you are uh, a person who has difficulty using a website, Amazon or whatever, and then you file a lawsuit, et cetera, under the ADA, you know, that then maybe the website thing gets changed. So imagine if building code was like that, where like, I, I mean, I guess it is sometimes, right? Uh, well, yeah, anymore, certainly. Yeah. Especially like if you don't have a wheelchair, big. if you don't have a wheelchair ramp or something, that would be yeah. the equivalent. There, but there's it, always, you know, stuff is always grandfathered in, of course. You know, old buildings, things like that tend to not have to deal with it. Anything city-owned in most municipalities, yeah, they have to, you know, fix things in order to use them. Um, it's, I, I hate it because it, it really, it takes a knife to this idea that we just said earlier about, you know, how we encourage people to dive into code, learn by doing, all of that. If we if if this industry was regulated in that fashion, we completely mm. eliminate the ability to do that because yeah. to to build a site, you would then be required to go to school, basically. Yeah. Is what it amounts to. We, and not everybody can do that. And we already know that access to this is the difference between some people having a career and not and getting ahead and getting out of bad situations. Like there's a ton of research about accessibility to the technology in general is a major uh, factor in e the economic status of the people mm -hmm. who have access to it. And so it's dangerous to say it. And I'm not saying when I say regulation is the answer, not saying that I think that it's a good answer or that I would advocate mm -hmm. for that because I don't, but I do think that those two things are the fighting forces. And it's why we have the inaccessible web that we do today that is the consequence of it. I think that um, just devil, playing devil's advocate here, um, the big difference between the construction analogy and the web analogy is that if a building is built incorrectly, it could be structurally unsound, it could collapse, it could, in a best case scenario, result in loss of you know damages to the building and loss of money. Worst case scenario, it kills people. Um, if a website is inaccessible, then people can't use it, which is, you know, shouldn't happen. But, you know, it's easier to change a website than it is to 
change how a building is built. <laughs> yeah, but follow that to its logical conclusion, though, because in the end, you know, building codes cover more than accessibility. They cover mm-hmm. electrical. They cover plumbing. Right. They cover all this other stuff. And in any world where we did that with web, accessibility would not be the only thing regulated. Security true. Oh, would be one. And that's so a good when point. you say you build a bad website, yeah, you, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Well, if you're storing a lot of, you know, private data in a really bad way, a whole lot of bad stuff could happen. I mean, yeah, the risks are different, certainly. Well, we have, but, I mean, for that matter, we have PCI compliance. If you're doing payment, uh, yeah. payment processing, you have to be PCI compliant. And I think there's, uh, well, for a certain, I know at least in the government, in the government sector at USCIS, we had the 508 compliance, which was like, I mean, that was part of the build process. You know, you, yeah. you deploy your branch to staging and then you have one of our 508 experts review it and then they have to sign off on it before it goes to production. So usually. here's, here's a, the, the, a takeaway at this point, because we had said at one, you know, at one uh, stage of this early on that, you know, there's no, there's nothing that forces you to be accessible on the web. And I'm sure folks went, isn't that what Section 508 is for? <laughs> um, and so there's an article, uh, and this was also something that uh, uh, Aaron found and, and shared, but there was a quote in it that I need to give you guys. <laughs> this was about an ADA lawsuit that was filed against a, I think it was a city. Is it a city or county? Um, the guy was filing lots of lawsuits, and I have my own feelings up about that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, there was a, chunk of text in it though here's what it said in june 2018 103 members of the u.s house of representatives asked the u.s department of justice to quote state publicly that private legal action under the ada with respect to websites is unfair and violates basic due process principles in the absence of clear statutory authority and issuance by the department of a final rule establishing website accessibility standards unquote the House members also asked the DOJ to, quote, provide guidance and clarity with regard to website accessibility under the ADA, unquote. That I th- I think sounds out- like a lot. <laughs> I think the outcome of that was that the, the DOJ declined to. Yeah, the DOJ yeah. just said, yeah. you guys are nuts. Yeah. But my point being, it's, yeah, I mean, 103 members of the House of Representatives is, you know, that's 20% of the House of Representatives, give mm-hmm. or take. and. The key to that whole quote, there's one word that that whole thing hinges on. Private. <laughs> private legal action. What they're saying is private companies have no obligation to follow those rules or shouldn't unless yeah. a very clear rule is established under the ADA. Right now, it's just kind of assumed that yeah. these things go together. And from a legal standpoint, that can be dangerous. So... I I say all of that to just emphasize the idea that this is not like solved territory. It's not a solved I, problem. I think okay. So on one side there, you have um, those those 103 representatives are saying that they want they think that the private sector should be afforded a very clear bullet point list. You know, if you check all these boxes, then you can't be sued, or or at least you're. You have good grounds for a defense. Um, but on the other hand, though, whether or not a website is accessible, I, I mean, like, we all know the jokes about unit tests, right? Like, unit, te- unit test passes and it's like a door that opens the wrong way or something. Um, 
you know, you can check all the boxes and the site could still be inaccessible or have accessibility issues. So it's kind of a gestalt thing. It's kind of a, you know, when you see it kind of thing. And I, I'm glad that the DOJ recognizes that uh, because I, I think that it had, they said like, yes, here's the checkbox list. Um, I think we'd be missing out. And there's these statements come across a little trite and I know that, but things like accessibility, accessibility is never done. A website is never finished. But the reason those kinds of phrases are meaningful here is that it doesn't matter where you work. Most mm. places that have a website do not have a full-time web person on staff. They mm. bring somebody in to build the site, they do it, and then they leave. That, I hadn't considered That's a good point. Yeah. Like a restaurant. The restaurant website that we, um, yeah, we mentioned yeah. the restaurant episode. Yeah, how many restaurants do you know have a web developer on staff? <laughs> Name right. one, please. Don't tell me Applebee's. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's, you know, th this creates this sort of wave of a process, and the process is never able to overtake the wave as a result because mm -hmm. for a lot of places, it's always a catch-up game. Um, and yeah. then you know, four months into a, a project or four years down the road, they change a tool. Yeah. This was something that, uh, Aaron, you were talking to me about before we started the show, right? Yeah. That you had a great tool. Right, yeah. And then it was decided by people that weren't you to change the tool. Yes, it was, um, I'll, I'll give the, the very abstract description of it. It had really cool, like, it was a CMS that we had at, at Cornell and it had like really cool, like it would alt, warn you if you didn't have alt text and it would check for like uh, overuse of certain tags. It had really tight restrictions on what tags and classes you could use. But, um, you know, leadership decided to go in a different direction with CMSs. And so we don't use it. We didn't use yeah. it anymore. What Once yeah. the tool changed, it set the whole process back behind yeah. the wave even further then. Right. Um, and so there are all these factors that come into play that, you know, this reason why it always feels like you're playing catch up and everybody says, well, just include accessibility at the start of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Folks, the conversation has been going on for 25 years. <laughs> uh, this think... isn't a thing. You know, most folks are not working somewhere where they're getting to do something from the ground up scratch where they can really do that. I, I think that it's OK that that the process stays ahead of the um, the wave. Or rather, the wave stays ahead of the process. Um, I, I think as long as it doesn't outpace it. Like, you know, if you're surfing it, you're never going to get, or you don't want to get on the other side of the wave. You want to stay right, right under the curl or like right, right in front of it. Sure. I think that's okay. And, you know, it's okay to just be right there and not quite be on the other side. I think it would be problematic. And I think that's kind of where we're going now. And that's why we're having so many discussions about this. If uh, if you get where the wave is just gone, like the the wave has already crashed into the shore and you're still out in the ocean, <laughs> that that's lawsuit territory is what yeah. that means. <laughs> There's also this idea, and I say this with all love in my heart, that content authors are dumb, <laughs> and that's I you know I know that they aren't not in a general sense, but about this they are, uh, and. I always use this idea of, you know, the secretary in the art uh, department, you know, who's oh, been right. tasked with 
you know, other duties as assigned, we'll go update the website. She doesn't know what alt text is, and she's not going to come to your training where you explain what it is. And really, is it her responsibility to know those things? It, no, you it know? absolutely yeah. isn't. That that has been thrust upon her, but that's the way yeah. the web gets built, unfortunately. Right. Uh, it happens everywhere. It, it would it would be like if you asked that same secretary to move a couple thing move a couple uh uh pallets of goods down in the warehouse, right? Like you wouldn't do that because well, there's regulation rules about who can use the forklift. <laughs> but I mean, you know, she hasn't been trained, or he or she hasn't been trained, and um, so you wouldn't expect it to be executed perfectly, right? And our tools aren't good enough for that. That's sort of the the gap there is that the tools that we put in front of these people, and to your example, uh, Aaron, you know, if you're using WordPress, normally WordPress doesn't require alt text. It doesn't require a mm-hmm. description. It doesn't require a caption. None of that has to be put in, and there's nothing context-aware about it so that when you do put it in, it doesn't highlight the thing in red and throw up a box that says this image doesn't have alt text. There's you know, no feedback loop on any of this stuff. That would be a nice thing to have added to WordPress would be mandatory alt text. And the the consequences are very real. Uh, if, you, if you've ever used a screen reader, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure you haven't because I've never seen you wear glasses. I don't think you wear contacts. Not yet. <laughs> so you've got good eyes. You don't need to use a screen reader. I don't need to use a screen reader. Uh, but... There's a, a video clip that's linked in Ethan's article. We'll include it uh, in the show notes too. But I want you to hear, just real fast here, what this sounds like when somebody is using a screen reader and hits an image that doesn't have any alt text on it. Heading level two. Image with no alt attribute. You are currently on a heading level two. Slash example. One, two, three. JPG image. You are currently on an image. Yeah. So imagine going to a gallery page, you know, a news article that's got, you know, 15 pictures from an event and hearing that 15 (laughs) times. So, you know, go ahead. Not only do you not know what happened, but it just takes up time. So I mentioned the scoping thing earlier. This is something that I learned about at USCIS. But um, if you have a table head, TH tag. And then you have to say, is that table head tag, is that for the row or for the column? Right. So if you say scope equals row, then what happens is a screen reader won't, it won't reread the table head tag each time. Or or it's something like um, it makes assumptions about what that table head tag means when reading through the items. Um. And there's a there's an example. I'll I'll find a couple of videos on YouTube. I encourage you all to look it up. Uh, look up like Jaws screen reading or something on YouTube, and you can see examples of people using this. It's really amazing. I know we've mentioned it before in the show, but seriously, check it out. At the end of the day, the only takeaway there's only one thing we can say about this, and that's the fact that when it comes to accessibility, all of the responsibility is on you and me and Aaron to just keep talking about this. Yeah. Uh, we need to work it into training cycles. We need to work it into documentation. I was going to say, if you've got if you've got Slack at work, like we use Slack, I think you do too. Yeah. Right. Um, 
if you've got Slack, uh, find people who are into accessibility or who like it and make a Slack channel and, you know, talk. Just start talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, get a handful. Get some QA folks in there. Get, mm. you know, your developers in there, one or two of them. Get a designer in there. Get that representation of that nexus that we've talked mm-hmm. about. Get those people in there and use them. You know, they are Hugh Borg. You're going to use them to infect the rest of the, the collective <laughs> and get them to uh, uh, understand the importance of, of accessibility. More voices is good. Now, number two for the evening, for the day. Doesn't matter, <laughs> whenever you're listening. Uh, web component design systems. Now, if you listen to our last episode, uh, great. If you haven't, go back and listen to it, then come back to this, because I think that there's a lot of good information that factors in here. And it's this idea of using web components in your development. And that has a lot of context to that a lot of folks aren't familiar with. So when when I when I saw this article, um, design system, it immediately called to mind the um, episode with Greg uh, Pedanovich, right? Number number fourteen, right? Fourteen. Yeah, and um, but a design system is not the same as a design philosophy. Yeah, right? so he, he was talking about design philosophy, which factors into design systems, certainly. Okay, uh, and so like there's this idea, right? You have design systems, you have pattern libraries, you have style mm-hmm. guides. And so there's all these words, basically. We've got word salad, but they aren't the same <laughs> thing. There's an article. So first off, the article we're talking about is um, from the Ionic framework, which right. is uh, they started out, they were like a React-based uh, component system, and okay. they reinvented themselves as a, a web component system. Um, and so this article is from them. So there is take that with a certain grain of salt, because obviously they have an interest in in promoting their own system. But... Design systems, uh, there's an article at uxpin.com that we'll have linked, mm-hmm. and they've got a breakdown of this that I think is the best one that I could use, so I'm going to use it directly. Um, yeah. They they explain that a style guide is another subclass of a design system. The static documentation okay. describes the design system itself, how products should look and feel, use cases for UI patterns, correct typographic scales, etc. The Pattern library is also the subclass of the design system. It's the set of design patterns for use across a company. Now, uh, this is me talking. That pattern library will be informed by the style guide. The things in the pattern library will reflect that. Does pattern library mean, like, visual patterns? Yes. Like like houndstooth, for example? Right. That's a weird example, but... So not, like... um... Not like UI patterns or programming patterns. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to have code styles. It's not going to have user flows. These are going to be examples of elements and things that you use on your site. Um, Typography, things like that. The style guide, like as a a comparison, it will say, the style guide will say, we use this font. This is our font. We mandate these kinds of padding and things like that. But it will also include things like this is how we sound. You know, this yeah. is the way we write stuff. This is the way we use our colors. This is the way we should display our logos, things like that. The pattern library would then have usable examples of those implemented. The design system is all of that crammed together. Oh, cool. So one thing that I discovered from that article, the Ionic Framework one, was um, webcomponents.org. 
and they they have like a if you go to slash introduction on that site they have like kind of an overview of what it is but like this is kind of a big this is like uh what are those css frameworks there's the tachyon yeah like yeah this would be like tachyons right it's like that kind of generalized web tech so approach yeah and we we talked about this a little bit and i say in the last episode with brian olandike because what he is doing with hacks uh editor is building a block editor that is entirely based on web components yeah and so this will be a little bit of a review because we did talk about that in the last episode, but it's it's good to rehash. The the web component standard is like this. It is it is a thing that lives mm. uh, within some other items. So that comes into things like custom elements that comes with uh, Shadow DOM and these kind of tools that together create a web component. So I think you've maybe learned a little bit more about this than I have at this point from talking to Brian, but... Um, can you explain briefly for our listeners what a web component is? So uh, the example I gave in that episode, I'm going to reuse it because I, I still think it's probably one of the best ones that people will relate to is AMP pages. Okay. If, if you're using an accelerated mobile page or you've looked at an accelerated mobile page, uh, go pull it up in your browser and do a view source on it. Mm-hmm. And you'll see all these tags. And some of them are normal. P tags. Mm-hmm. P tags are everywhere. You know what a P tag is. But then you'll see an AMP image, AMP-image tag, instead of a normal IMG image tag. Right. And what they have done is they have created their own component that is the AMP-image and redefined the way they intend for it to be used in the context of that page. Okay. So this is kind of like how the modernizer JavaScript plugin allows older browsers to play nice with modern HTML? A little bit, but it's kind of the reverse of that. Okay. It's more like teaching browsers how to use HTML that doesn't exist yet. (laughs) Cool. Because the the whole idea is you come up with your own tags. I want to create a car called a car. I'm already, I'm (laughs) I'm thinking ahead too far and I'm trying to finish my gingerbread while I'm at it. Uh, I want to create a card that is Fiend-Car. Okay. Um, because the dash is important. The dash is part of what defines a custom element. Okay. When I write that tag, I may give it some properties. I may say, fiend and dash car, year equals 1953. Okay. Uh, make equals Chevy. Model equals Bel Air. And that tag, when put into a browser, knows that I am supposed to render out, you know, a image of a 1953 Bel Air with a link to the Wikipedia article on it and, you know, some other content that maybe is defined inside that tag or anything else I want. Okay. It's a wrapper. It's an abstraction layer because right. inside the definition of that web component, you are including all of your HTML and things that would say, this is how this works. This is what the browser is actually seeing. That's what the shadow DOM is. I think I saw, I think I saw one of the examples was like, um, like a podcast dash player tag, mm-hmm. and and then it was it was really elegant, and actually it reminded me a lot of uh, WordPress shortcodes. Yeah, except I mean a little different. Like WordPress shortcodes work differently. It, but... It's like a WordPress shortcode that works anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, anywhere with the appropriate web component, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to yeah. include the stuff. Yeah, you can't just yeah. use it without the the include or the dependencies. The the 
close analog to this, we talked uh, with Dustin in episode 31 about styled components. Mm -hmm. It's a very similar idea to something like that, you know, React components. But this doesn't require, like, a framework. Right. It's just kind of drop in place. That's the huge advantage that this has over other things is that if I have a React component, that's awesome, but I can't use it anywhere else. It's a React right. component. It's literally in the name. That's And that was the argument that uh, Ionic made with their framework. They're yeah. Like, we, our stuff isn't portable. Right. And, and that's their argument, too, with the design system thing, is that maybe part of your team is using React, but that doesn't mean everybody is or is using the same version of it. A big company may be very dynamic and very differentiated in the technologies it uses, the stacks it uses, anything mm-hmm. like that. Having web components in play abstracts all of that away in a standards-based way, and that's something I we didn't use that phrase yet, but web components is a standards-based utility that you can use to create your own custom stuff so you know it's going to work the same everywhere. Okay. And it is supported across the board. I like that. But going back to what we were saying about accessibility earlier... Are these accessible? Hmm. So that's where we get back to this discussion of things like the Shadow Dom. Yeah. The Shadow Dom is an abstraction of the Dom for that element. Right. So if you view Source, you're going to see this weird custom element. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you ever looked at like an iframe in a, in yeah. a view source? Not view source, but like in the uh, inspector in Chrome. Yeah. And right. you know that when you haven't, you hit an iframe you notice there's like a tag, I think it says, what is it? Uh, it's like a hash document root or something like that. Right. And then it gives you another page, but it's nested inside. Right. That's right. how Shadow Dom works. Got it. It's kind of like an iframe that isn't an iframe, but it has <laughs> many of those features. It's abstracted away from the rest of the Dom. There's yeah. no style leakage uh, in or out. So if you inspected uh, Fiend and Car. Would you in the inspector like view source may show Fien and Car, but the, in the inspector is it going to show the HTML that's generated by Fien and you'll, Car? You'll see the Fien and Car, but then you'll see. And I think in Chrome, I think it literally just says Shadow DOM, and then it gives oh. you the DOM for that element that you have defined okay. inside of your spec. And cool. that DOM is just normal HTML elements, or it could be other web components in that case. But in most cases, you're not. You know, it's not turtles on turtles on turtles. You're just yeah, trying yeah. to abstract a layer out. So it's going to have whatever divs, spans, whatever you, you need. But it means that now when I've got my car gallery up and mm-hmm. I realize I've made an accessibility mistake, I forgot to include alt attributes. Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe how stupid I was. <laughs> After doing this episode, After even. After all of the talk we've done about this, <laughs> I made this web component. I didn't put alt tags in it. All I have to do is update the JavaScript file that contains the spec for the web component. And now all of those instances are now updated. Oh, right. Because they're all referencing... Because they all reference the spec. It's abstracted. So Very cool. The only way that breaks then is if you were to like actively change the name of a property or something like that. Right. Which doesn't happen in most cases. Like... You would rather add something on than change something that's existing in that situation. But th- this is a problem that's 
already kind of not solved, but we have an awareness of it as developers when doing like uh, building class APIs or something. Yeah, totally. You know, when, yeah, you, you make the you try to keep the public interface as unchanged as possible and then just change things underneath. It's the right. open closed principle. Yeah. yeah. Oh, open, yes, that's the word. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I was not going to get there. Uh, I'm I'm on my last glass, uh, but I've got a whole shaker here that I've finished off. So I'm envious. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so this is so this is why web components work. This is why it's good for a design system, because when those unknown unknowns come up, when you discover, yeah. oh hey we saw that you have the wrong role on an element or you're not using right. ARIA tags properly here or at all. Yeah. All you have to do is change your spec and you fixed it everywhere. This was something Brian specifically talks about uh, right. with like, I think it was their video player uh, component. They keep making it better and they don't have to change anything in the content itself. I like that a lot. Okay, wait. So you mentioned styled components earlier. Yeah. How does... How does this work with CSS? So, yeah, it, it's uh, semantically very similar. Like, you would embed, in most cases, the CSS within the web component. Okay. You are not required to do that, certainly. You could include a CSS file that is built out with SAS and all that, so you can use all your same uh, variables and mix-ins and functions and all of that. Um, yeah. And in most cases, that probably would be the preferable way to do it. But you could do them very much like a styled component where all of your styles are defined within that element. Um, right. And they are uniquely scoped to, and you mentioned tachyons earlier. Um, yeah. I think of it kind of like atomic design, but these are like, right. these are completely self-contained molecules in the atomic design sense. Um and so you never have to change anything outside of them if something is wrong. Hypothetically, if we had like a, uh, not a video player, because you wouldn't see text there, but um, maybe like a, I don't know, a podcast player that showed like the title of the podcast or something using a uh, text tag. Yeah. Would you be able to change, and like, let's say that the uh, component creator defaulted to yellow text but you're using a white background and you're savvy enough to know that yellow is not a good contrast ratio for but it was background. he thought it was okay because it was really dark yellow so yeah yeah so you want to you make your website better can you use like simple css to just change that text color yeah because again there's no scope leakage right when you affect that element you're only changing that element and so when so you'd be able to hook onto that using CSS and then just kind of have have the benefit of cascading on your site without having things leak out of that. Is yeah, that what well, saying? what I'm saying is uh, if if you're talking about like a CSS file, for instance, mm -hmm. you would need to make sure that the component is importing the same CSS file that your page is. Right. Because it, right. it is sandboxed, basically. Oh, okay. So, like, yeah, okay. it won't be affected by at least, and if any, if I'm saying any of this wrong, please correct me. But um, <laughs> if you, the way the Shadow DOM works, because it sandboxes the element uh, by default, it won't reflect a change to your root oh. CSS unless the root CSS is also included in that element. Okay. So, like, if you've so defined think... all the CSS locally inside the yeah. web component, 
and you change like the H1 color because you think right. you're going to change the color in the component, you're not going to change the color in the component doing that. I think that that might be the only thing I don't like about this so far. Is I I think that the the site CSS should be able to like overlap onto the component. Yeah. But I think maybe that can happen in the future. Though. But it's the difference, right, between sharing or integrating. If you're integrating mm-hmm. web components of your own choosing into your own project, that's a solved problem. You just include the yeah. CSS with it. It's cached in your browser already. It's not like it's re-downloading it or anything. Right. And so right. then any changes you make to that file would affect the component. Or if, you could even have like a separate CSS file that's just for components. Certainly. 100%. Yeah. yeah. If yeah. if it's somebody else's component, because there is, there's a whole library of web components that you can just go download. It's kind of like NPM, but for web components. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, those are something somebody else has written. And so yeah. they're totally self-contained. Again, like thinking about this molecule idea, you can just pick them up and use them in space. Like they don't, you have to, you don't have to link your CSS in it. You don't have to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Unless you just want to change it, in which case you would just change it in there, you know, in, in the include at that point. Um, huh. There's an article over at Free Code Camp that actually addresses accessibility on web components. That's going to be linked in, in the show notes, too, um, that you should check out. But this all comes back to this idea that this method becomes very future proof. Because yeah. if you find that mistake, if you find, you know, improper markup or missing something or improving accessibility changing the spec changes it in all the places the components used and you're not forced to go back and redo anything i like this i i think it feels incomplete like i i think that like i mentioned before i think the the css thing but overall though i think this is a good this feels like this could be a good direction to go in um for like the growth of how we do web yeah the more i have learned yeah. about it and yeah. uh, the more i've researched on it i've been building uh gutenberg blocks lately mm-hmm. that's been for the last several weeks all i've been doing for work for the most part and as i'm doing it the more i'm doing it and the more i've learned about it um i've discovered that a dynamic blocks are your friend <laughs> especially in development but there's because there's a problem right when you write a block and this is going to get a little technical so i apologize and it may not translate well over audio but we're going to try <laughs> when you write a block you define an edit and a save function the okay. the edit function shows you what the thing looks like in wordpress's editor okay the save function is what runs when you hit the save or the update or save button publish button in wordpress right and then that gets moshed into the content for the page yes if you then change your markup and change the structure of it because like and this is exactly what happened to me as i was building what i was calling the complex header (laughs) we had this header that goes on elements that needed a a word on one side with a little like descriptive text on the side and an icon yeah and so i made a block called a complex header but i was working i was changing you know does the icon go inside the H2, outside? Is the P tag, you know, is it uh, is it inside a div? Can I just use it outside? And so I was moving stuff around as I was building this to get the CSS right. But what I discovered was, as I would save it out, 
I kept breaking it over and over and over because when Gutenberg would reload, it would huh. say, hey, my edit says this, and my saved output says that when I process the edit, it should look like this. But the code that is in the page, that is saved in the page as a result, doesn't match. What do you want to do? Huh. And this has become a big argument in the Gutenberg community over whether or not blocks should be allowed to rewrite the markup of previously saved instances. Oh, man. Because technically it's very difficult. Technically it's an incredibly hard thing to do because it's saved. It literally renders out a text blob and saves it into the content field. Right. And so how does WordPress know that it should go back and rewrite you know, 1,300 instances of a given block if your site's big. <laughs> and then another folks say, like, the the blocks should not get to redefine the content the author wanted when they wrote it. Right. And I get it. Like, I get the argument uh, through and through. But that doesn't change the fact that there are completely legitimate purposes where I might want to... Because I may realize I've nested items in a way that hurts a screen reader. Right. I didn't include an ARIA role in the right place, or I want to include an ARIA role, and I want to give the user the ability to say, what is the role of this element? But if it changes the markup, I break the block validation. And so web components, <laughs> I think, are the solution to this. I think the the future of Gutenberg blocks in WordPress, if you're building custom blocks... I think you should be building or web components. I think yeah. that is the right way to do that. The more I have thought about it and the more I've looked at the consequences, I think that has to be the right way to go about it. I wonder how different or, or how difficult it would be to like boil that ocean and, you know, and swap out React in exchange for like web components instead. Well, you can't just swap out React. How I, I have I really I have not been keeping up that, with WordPress. <laughs> so this is, but this is sort of the neat part, and it, it kind of underlines yeah. this idea, uh, and the one that uh, Brian made excellently. Web components are standards based; it works everywhere. Oh, so okay. Gutenberg is written in React, and if you are working like you want to do inspector controls, things like that, you know, you're using yeah. React components. Um, and they've got this huge library of all of these uh, React components that you can use in your Gutenberg blocks. Mm -hmm. And it's an incredibly similar process, except that if I want to use a text control in something that isn't Gutenberg, I can't mm -hmm. do it because it's a React component. It only works in the context of React. Right. My web component works everywhere. Yeah. Just by dropping it in. And in queuing my JavaScript as part of the initialization function, it will just work. <laughs> and it's wild. <laughs> that may sound crazy. Like it, it may sound like I'm being stupid oversimplification y Michael thing. <laughs> I don't know which word was the adjective in that sentence, but uh, <laughs> Michael. Michael was the adjective. Michael was the adjective. <laughs> uh, that's not always incorrect as it turns out. <laughs> But it really is that simple. That's crazy, man. Defining a web component is a very easy thing. When you set up your block in uh, WordPress, you define which scripts are for the editor, which scripts are for the front end, and you enqueue them. And you would just say, yeah, enqueue my web component JavaScript with this block, and you're done. It's 
really empowering and it makes it easy to update these things moving forward. Um, you know, this idea that they're useful everywhere and maybe more importantly to me and kind of bringing it back to this idea of the design standard. Um, mm -hmm. Like we've started using, uh, we've got a, a project we're doing right now that we're going to be handing off to somebody. And then yeah. we're kind of going to be hands off from that point forward. Oh, but if you're using web components in it, though, then you can indirectly update their we, the way the content renders. We could. We wouldn't in just the context of the relationship that we have in this case. Right. But right. I think more importantly, like we've, we took that opportunity to build out a pattern library. Mm -hmm. And so we used a, uh, a tool called Astrum, which I've grown yeah. to really enjoy. It, it's incredibly simple. Uh, it runs like if you've got, if you're using a GitHub repo and you use GitHub pages, yeah, you can just have your Astrum pattern library run right on GitHub pages. It's brilliant. Um, huh. but the pattern library can then showcase every time we make any kind of like block levely kind of element that we need to show them how to use, we just add it to the pattern library. And we <laughs> say, this is your testimonial block. You've got your testimonial rotator on the homepage. It's just testimonial dash block. And you give it yeah. a list of the testimonials you want or something along those lines. And I can put it in the pattern library and have the code right there. That is, if, if you want this type of block here's how you do it this reminds me a lot of how ruby gems work and i guess for that matter um like npm modules you like you import this one thing so you import this component but really like importing a single component like the file that could really include multiple components couldn't it like, it's just javascript yeah, right totally so like you could have like you know a like a podcast component and it could include like podcast player uh, transcript player or whatever um, a couple different things that you could then include and someone could put that in the header of their site and it's sort of like bringing in a gem or a node module or whatever and it gives them access to like this api of functionality that they can then use and then if later on if there's a new version they it gives them new functionality i i like this i i feel like it is a nice it's the web borrowing something nice from the like command line programming world <laughs> <laughs> and so it going back to the the start of this uh part of the topic this idea of how a design system is a collection of style guide pieces yeah. and pattern library components and things like this what it lets you do is it take all of that stuff wrap it up and then make it easily reusable across everybody yeah and as a result it gets really hard to make mistakes with it because you know think about what you might do to say, you know, make an interactive map and you've got divs yeah. and JavaScript files and, and, you know, nested sidebars and accessibility pieces and all this stuff. Now, instead of having to rely on your developer, remembering to use every one of those divs and, Oh, it, the padding on it's weird because he didn't put the wrapper div on it because that mm -hmm. dude's a moron. Why? Of course you put the wrapper <laughs> on it. Why would you not put the wrapper <laughs> on it? That can all be integrated into your component. And you just say, when you're making a map, you just put map-component. Yeah. And you give it your Latin longitude and a zoom level, and it will take care of everything else that the brand needs from that point forward. Getting back to a point we made earlier about how do we, as developers, and as even though the newer developers from us, how do we incorporate accessibility into our stuff? maybe the solution is newer developers 
would be using web components. And then the accessibility stuff would be lifted initially upstream. And so as these components are being used, basic accessibility things are being incorporated. Maybe. Would that I, work? I mean, a little bit. I think at the end of the... Well, and so one of the things that Brian was uh, real keen on that we talked about in the first half of the show, this idea of context awareness. Okay. His tool is context aware, the hacks editor. Mm-hmm. Um, at least, you know, if if the component that you're working on has been written that way. So he, they, one of the examples he gave was of his meme generator. And okay. he would give it like a, a title and an image and, you know, a caption and all this. And the tool is smart enough to know what things support this. And it could match huh. those together. But one of the other examples <laughs> was foreground background color. And okay. because the tool already integrated a calculation to compare hex values, you could right. know whether or not it passes WCAG AA standards. Yeah. And then present an alert to the user. And I mean, at that point, the sky's the limit. Do you want to prevent yeah. them from saving their content? Then do that. Yeah. Force them to pick colors that are contrasty. Um, force them to put in that alt text. Force them to do whatever you need to. Because if you're building your tools with that level of context awareness, mm-hmm. you start to fix those problems because you you're only able to fix the problems that you can calculate sure and to throw back to the first half of the show one of the things that was in ethan's article was or rather in in web aims research all of the stuff that they found let me see here's the quote he says here's the real kicker for me me being ethan he says quote web says these automatically detectable errors constitute a small portion of all possible WCAG failures. In other words, these are just the errors that could be detected pro- programmatically. The real picture is even worse <laughs> than the numbers suggest. Oh, that's sad. Because accessibility <laughs> is very qualitative in nature. And it's not just the checklists. Yeah. It's not just the checkboxes. Yeah, like you yeah. say, you can you open the door? Yes, but you can't open it into a wall you know there (laughs) there are consequences and there are things that aren't always objectively um able to be substantiated it's a very qualitative kind of thing um you know you get into and you could calculate this but it would be hard but contrast uh rules change with font size Right. So it's, oh, yeah, that's true. So yeah. comparing color isn't actually enough. You have to compare color and font and size. size. Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, it would just be like a it would be like a boost score or something on the color value. But um, it's certainly much harder. You know, it makes that calculation yeah. much, much more difficult. But there's there are tons of different qualitative uh, accessibility mm-hmm. experiences. And those things can't just be programmed into a web component and be taken care of. Um, yeah. That's where you have to learn it. You have to be taught. You have to explain different things. If, if someone were to make a really cool web component to display tables in a certain way, like, you know, we have like a data tables library with JavaScript. Yeah. What if you made, what if you had a data tables component or something similar to that? And then while building that, 
you incorporate, you had proper table row and column scoping and you had, you know, the, the correct, um, like tables don't have the alt text, alt text. They have the, uh, summary or summary. Caption. Sorry. Summary. Yeah. And, and so it, you, you know, you'd have like the summary would be included there also. And, And you could, you know, require or throw an error or whatever, if the user hasn't defined those, but you could like, you know, kind of enforce accessibility issues through the use it's like sort of like the trade-off like well if you want to use our awesome component you gotta cover these bases yeah and you should i think that's Mm -hmm. exactly the right answer and i think that anytime somebody says oh well yeah don't use this component because the guy that wrote it you know it, it throws tons of errors yeah well yeah that's the point (laughs) And so let me explain to you why that is a good thing. Yeah. You know, and it all comes back to let's let's bring this full circle before we head out of here. Yeah. The this idea of cost, right? Mm -hmm. Accessibility adds cost to things because you do have to do more work. You have to write the summaries, you have to make sure you have headers, you have to make sure you've taken care of alt text, that you've checked all your color contrasts on elements. Gutenberg, you know Gutenberg supports a color palette. It's very cool. Okay. Um, when you're yeah. setting up your blocks or your uh, your Gutenberg configuration in your theme, you can actually define a color palette so that when okay. somebody clicks an element and the color picker shows up, it has a list of swatches that are predefined to whatever like your brand colors are or whatever. I like that. That is nice. It's very cool. Yeah. No color checking on it whatsoever. <laughs> You could pick the same color for foreground and background color. <laughs> it's, you know, stuff like that is going to drive me nuts at the end of the day because it's going to take somebody time and money to fix it. And somebody will always come up like in the WordPress community. They're going to say, yeah, but we have a use case for that. Yeah. I don't know what that could be, but I'm sure somebody would come up with it. I, I don't think that, you know, we talked about regulation earlier. I, I don't think that regulation should be seen as the solution for this problem. I think that we as programmers should solve it. That's what we do. We solve problems. This is a problem. Yeah. We should listen. Yeah. Yeah. We should listen to the folks who are complaining. Um, I mean, everybody is uh, clear. I think at this point, Matt should listen to everybody with Gutenberg who is complaining. Yeah. Cause like the color picker is actually a, a good example. I think. You should probably not prevent publishing content if somebody has picked a foreground and background color on an element that don't pass contrast standards. But (laughs) But make them aware. It should absolutely throw an error or a warning or or something. Yeah. I I know that it's not enough ultimately, but I think for now as a start, like being aware that you're doing things like if you're if you're going to be an asshole you should be aware that you're being an asshole maybe you don't know the art so i i'm luckily as the more i drink the less assholey i get i'm just a fun (laughs) kind (laughs) of give me a topic i may rant i'm ranting (laughs) folks uh stick around with us for just a minute uh we're gonna check out take a break and come back and we'll get you out of here The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. 
Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Well, I hope that was useful for you. It was kind of, you know, abstract in its nature, but um, I like the way these topics dovetail and this idea of, yeah. you know, being an advocate, being uh, forward-thinking, and all of that plays together in kind of a very weird dance, but it's not unnatural, I think. I, I like the idea, because I, I love new things and seeing cool ways that people are doing stuff. But I like being able to do that and simultaneously straddling the, this idea of, or I guess straddling both sides of like accessibility and the old ways versus new hotness yeah. and all that. Well, and if, if this sounds like new and weird to anybody and you feel like, why haven't I heard about this? Keep in mind, Web Components only entered mainstream adoption last year. Wow, that's like super new. Yeah, it's very new, but it's very well supported across pretty much all the browsers. Since most browsers do auto updates, it kind of takes care of some of that. Um, but there are polyfills and whatnot. You know, if you go to the site that uh, Aaron uh, mentioned, go to webcomponents.org. There's information there on all of this. Um, you can find the polyfills you need. There are libraries that help you with this. Um, Brian last week had brought up Polymer is one. Ionic, of course, has their own library that they use. Um, it's called Stencil, I think, if I remember right. Okay. I think I saw one for that. Yeah. So there are a lot of ways to go about this, but... Remember, web components are a standard. You can use it now. It's like CSS Grid. You know, it's one of those right. things that is entered rapid adoption. And so you don't yeah. have to worry about, well, does Edge support it? Does Opera support it? No, everything, you're good. You're good to go. Cool. Oh, and uh, another shout out for Andy, A-N-D-I. There's a link in the show notes. Please check it out. Andy, uh, Axe Accessibility, Site Improves, mm -hmm. Site Scanner. Throw those in your toolbar in Chrome and just have them yeah be an it's free be an advocate check your stuff once in a while check other people's stuff and then tell them when it's wrong mm -hmm. that doesn't hurt either even if you're not blind or you're not you know deaf or have motor control issues or cognitive problems or anything you, mm -hmm. one of my favorites uh, i'm giving a talk i'm gonna go long-winded for a second i'm giving a talk here <laughs> uh, in may at the web accessibility summit on transcripts Cool. Oh, nice. <laughs> and one of the points I'm going to be making is, you know, accessibility doesn't mean deficiency. It yeah. it is a it can be very circumstantial. And some people listen to podcasts at work, mm -hmm. or rather, can't listen to a podcast at work. Mm -hmm. So they will look for a transcript, or maybe they don't have English as a first language and so it's hard for them to follow a conversation in audio format mm -hmm. but with a transcript in front of them while they're listening they're able to piece it together there are a lot of those things that doesn't mean that you're just blind or deaf and we've brought that up before like accessibility yeah. we tend to think of it in these very like 
rigid structures, but it's not yeah. at all that simple. There are times if there if there's a site that just has a video and there's no transcript, I will straight right out of that site. I if I'm just looking for a quote or a portion of it or something or like one specific topic that's interesting to me, I'll control F if I can on the transcript. I love that. If it's true for Aaron, you know it's true for everybody. <laughs> well, I do have two A's in my name. So, uh, <laughs> sure you can tell us how bad our opinions are there on the socials, Facebook and Twitter.com slash DrunkenUX, and on Instagram slash DrunkenUX Podcast. And don't forget to come check us out and yell at us on Slack at DrunkenUX.com slash Slack. Uh, yeah, and if you do see me, uh, if you're if you're in Missouri, you're headed to Springfield, you're going to be at the Web Accessibility Summit at the end of May. Um, catch me. I'm going to have a, a giveaway or two that I'm going to take with me there, so that'll be a fun little thing to be announced then. I have it already. I just don't want to spoil the surprise yet. Folks, <laughs> thanks for sitting with us. I hope this was useful to you. Uh, what are your favorite accessibility tools? What web components have you built or are you looking Ooh. forward to using? Let us know. Yeah, seriously, let us know. I would love to hear what people are doing or how you're solving any of these mm-hmm. problems. Um, big companies, small firm, single per, you know, one man army, whatever. Uh, because really, the solutions do vary a lot and can be very tailored. So let us know. Uh, because at the end of the day, I only have one piece of advice for you, and it's the only thing I can tell you at the end of this show. And it's to keep your personas close, but your users closer. Bye bye. Yeah.